When I was younger, I was in my dad's room and I was snooping through his drawer where he kept a lot of the, the things that really meant a lot to him. And I remember one day when I went in, noticing that in this drawer was a badge that I had never seen before. It actually had my dad's picture and his name on it. And it said, federal agent. And I got really excited. I said, I didn't realize that my dad was actually like a special agent, like James Bond. He's really good. Like even his own family doesn't know what he's been doing. I've never seen him with a gun. Like this is incredible. And so I, I went to him and I, I said, hey dad, like I didn't know that you're a special agent. It's okay, your secret's good with me. I found your badge. And he said, actually I work for the Internal Revenue Service, not the FBI. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. Cause like the pocket protector and the calculator, no gun. Um, but if you think about it, it it's interesting, like I, I actually am not a prophet or the son of a prophet. I come from a long line of accountants. So my dad's an accountant, my grandmother was an accountant, that's actually how my mom and dad met, was through my grandma who's an accountant. I have two uncles who are accountants. If I would have been really sharp, I would have become an accountant. That would have been a killer job for me. Uh, only problem is, I thought about being an accountant for a hot second, and then I took an accounting class. And I realized there's lots of credits and debits. And you gotta find out why the credits don't match the debits. And it's just like this real sick game that I just wasn't interested in. And so I decided not to be an accountant. Any accountants here? Yeah, you guys are great. I appreciate y'all. Um, your, your job is awesome. I'm grateful for people like you so that I can be me. And, um, but accounting uh, was, was really, you know, just always in my home, being discussed in my home. And, and what's interesting is, is that though I'm not an accountant, I, I find that accounting is actually really helpful for what Paul is trying to explain when he gets to chapter four of Romans. See, what Paul's really trying to do is explain this doctrine of justification by faith alone. And he's really focusing in on, he's zeroing in on this doctrine of, of the nature of justification by faith alone that we call imputation. Uh, which speaks of counting or charging. Uh, now, we are in Romans 4, 1 to 8 this morning. Of course, the whole chapter is about imputation, but Paul has up to this point been explaining how accounting relates to justification by faith alone. That's what he's doing in Romans 4. And just to catch you up to speed, Paul has written this letter to explain his understanding, to clarify how he understands the gospel according to God. It's a, a gospel that centers on the righteousness of God. Now, Paul begins by showing that all people, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, the, the major division of humanity, he says, uh, whether you're Jew or Gentile, I want you to see that everyone is under the just, the righteous wrath of God because nobody meets God's righteous standards. There's, there's nobody that does it. And then in Romans 3, 21 to 4, 25, Paul shifts and he locks in on answering another question, which is this, how do we receive the gospel of the righteousness of God? How does this, this good news become good news for us? What is the good news for the unrighteous before their righteous God? 
Well, Paul says justification by faith alone in Christ alone to the glory of God alone eliminates every hint of human boasting. And then in Romans 4, after he shows that there's no place for human boasting with justification by faith alone, he turns and he he wants us to see that there is another aspect of the beauty of this doctrine that we want to really hone in on. And, And to do this in Romans 4, he's really just unpacking one verse, a central verse, and that is Genesis 15, 6, which we read at the beginning of the service. And that is the verse where we find that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And what Paul wants to do is make sure the Christians in Rome understand what he means by this. And he's using Abraham as a, a test case. Now, when it says that God counted this to him as righteousness, uh, this word counted is important. It's going to be repeated again and again throughout chapter 4. In fact, just in verses 1 to 12, it's used eight times. Now, this word, I looked it up, and it literally means to keep records of commercial accounts involving both credits and debits. It's to put into one's account, if you're accounting something to someone, to charge to their account, to regard as an account. It's accounting language. Now, we often think of accounting as something that is very rigid and boring, not exciting like the FBI. But when we think about accounting with regard to God's accounting, I hope that this morning what you see is, is that for the believer, we find that God's accounting is generous and beautiful. It is hope-birthing and life-giving. See, God's accounting is worth reveling in and meditating on and living for. See, before Abraham was circumcised in Genesis 17, and before Moses gave the law 400 years later, Abraham was counted righteous by faith. And the theology of God's accounting here is what we call imputation. It's what Paul is spending this whole chapter meditating on, unpacking for us. Now, if you're taking notes, let me just give you our big idea for this morning, and it's this. It's that through faith, God graciously counts you righteous and does not count your sins against you. Through faith, God graciously counts you righteous and he does not count your sins against you. We see both imputation and non-imputation brought together for you and me in Christ. Now first, we find that Paul begins the section with a question that's connected to what's just happened. And he basically is asking this, was was Abraham justified by works? This is what he says in verses 1 to 2. See, Paul has just declared that justification by faith alone eliminates, eliminates every hint of human boasting. Now, with that in mind, he's asking this question in verse 1, which he clarifies in verse 2. So so look with me at verse 1 again. This is what he says in verse 1. Paul says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? 
The question in verse 1, it might at first appear awkward. And as you're looking at this question, you, you look at this word gained by Abraham and you might ask, what, what is this, what's the idea that's trying to be expressed? Well, this word for gain can also be, be, be translated as found. So I take it that what Paul is, is asking is something like, what was found by Abraham, our father, according to the flesh? And by implication, what can we learn about how one is justified from this great patriarch of the Jewish and Christian faith? What can we learn from him and his experience spiritually, his, his spiritual journey? Well, Paul explains that he's, what he's getting at in verse 2. So if you look at verse 2, uh, he goes on to, to clarify. He says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Not before God. Now, if Abraham was justified by works, and he wasn't, he'd have something to boast about, but he doesn't. And that's why he declares, but not before God. Now, it sounds like what he just said in Romans 3.20. If you, if you look back up there, you'll remember in Romans 3.20, he began shifting to this section by saying, for by works of the law, no human flesh will be justified in his sight, being in God's sight. And the rest of the chapter, chapter 4, is going to unpack the reality of this. But this is a good time, I think, just to stop. We need to, to sort of pull over for just a second and ask ourselves, why is Paul, as he's talking about this doctrine of justification by faith alone, all of a sudden spending a whole chapter on the life of Abraham? Why Abraham? And I think that's a good question. Now, we could give a number of reasons. I've got a few here. Uh, for one, Paul is continuing to demonstrate for us the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's saying that the way that God operated with his people in the Old Testament is different now in the New Testament because Jesus has come, but it is not altogether different. There is continuity in the way that he has dealt with his people. There is both continuity and discontinuity, and he's been showing that throughout. Second, Abraham is kind of a big deal, and that's probably reason enough. I mean, if you think about the nature of Abraham, uh, Abraham spiritually is a patriarch of the Father for Jews and Gentiles alike. He was held as a kind of hero of the faith for the people of Israel. Abraham's a big deal. People know who he is. And, and Abraham is this kind of spiritual hero and patriarch of the faith that Jews would have sort of jumped on board with whatever example they found in his life. Third, Jews revered Abraham as a model of faithfulness. So Abraham is talking, I mean, Paul here is talking about faith and works, and he's trying to show the difference between the two. Well, Abraham was seen by many Jews as an example of works faithfulness. Now, here's the problem. Jews of Paul's day saw Abraham as an example of justification according to works of the flesh. There were many that saw that. Uh, you can see this in some of the writings around this period. For instance, in 1 Maccabees 2.52, 
We find that it says Abraham was the great father of a multitude of nations, and no one has been found like him in glory. He kept the law of the Most High and entered into a covenant with him. He certified the covenant in his flesh, and when he was tested, he proved faithful. See, Jews typically connected Abraham's faith in Genesis 15, 6 with that faithful act in Genesis 22 where God asked him to offer up his son, his only son Isaac, as a sacrifice before God intervened with a substitute sacrifice which they offered in his place. Now, listen close. These are not bad verses to put together. Genesis 15, 6. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And Genesis 22, where Abraham showed himself faithful. James does this. We find in James 2.21 that he says, Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? See, James doesn't disagree with Paul. No, James and Paul are just asking different questions. They're different contexts. So James says, saving faith will be accompanied by righteous deeds. Paul would say, yes, there is an obedience that goes with true faith. But what Paul's asking is something else. How is one made right with God in the first place? How does one get counted righteous? And Paul is confronting the idea that the gospel is that God saves people based on their faithfulness rather than faith. Now, Paul is, is teasing this out, and he's appealing to a couple of Old Testament texts. Of course, the main one is Genesis 15, 6. But notice, second, that God justifies the ungodly by counting them righteous. This is what Paul highlights in verses 3 to 5, that God justifies the ungodly by counting them righteous. Now, Paul first, again, he appeals to just Genesis 15, 6. And he does this in verse 3. And he's showing that God justified Abraham based on faith. And then he explains how he understands this justification by faith in verses 4 to 5. So, notice a couple of things here. First, God credited Abraham with righteousness based on faith in verse 3. Now, this quote, again, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, highlights a couple of things. And I want you to see both of these, these actions that we find in this verse. The first action is by Abraham, and the second is by God. Now, notice first that Abraham believed God. Now, this word for belief, it comes from the same root as faith. It means that he put his faith in or trusted God, and specifically, he trusted in the promises of God. So when we just read Genesis chapter 15, you'll remember that it's actually highlighted that he trusted God's promise of an offspring through whom many nations would come. And so what faith looked like for Abraham was trusting in the promises of God that had been given to him. God promised Abraham that offspring and a land through whom he would bless the nations in Genesis 12. Now, this verse does not say that Abraham was faithful, so God counted him as righteous. Now, Abraham was a, a pagan before he was a patriarch. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness before he tried to help God by having a child with Hagar. 
instead of Sarah, who was barren. He was counted righteous before he was circumcised in chapter 17. Before he told Abimelech that Sarah was his sister to save both their necks in chapter 20. Before he took his promised son Isaac to sacrifice him and God provided him with a substitute sacrifice in chapter 22. Before all of this, Abraham believed God and it was credited to his account as righteousness. Now, if you follow the life of Abraham from the time that he believed God and was counted as righteous to the end, you'll notice that he had a kind of clunky faith, right? It wasn't like a perfect, like no nonsense, no hiccup kind of faith. But instead, as you follow the process of his life, you see him growing in his trust and his confidence in God and his faithfulness. Before his faith matured, though, you'll notice that a second action took place. In Genesis 15, it was... Counted to him as righteousness. Counted by who? Well, by God. God counted righteousness to Abraham's account. Now, as I said before, this word for count is an accounting term referring to crediting one's account. And catch how Paul clarifies the nature of this accounting in verses 4 to 5. He wants to, to make it more clear. And notice here, we find that God justifies the ungodly by grace, not grit. God justifies the ungodly by grace, not grit. Here's what Paul says in verses 4 to 5. He says, Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trust him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. See, Paul says there are two different ways to understand why God counted Abraham as righteous. Uh, one is grace and the other is, is grit. So notice first that Jews understood Abraham's grit to have earned his righteous standing. Now Jews may have understood Abraham to have earned a righteous standing before God based on his faithful, gritty works. There were some who believed this. But if that were the case... Paul says Abraham's righteousness before God, his right standing, would be his due, a word that speaks of financial obligation of one party to another. It would be as though God were obligated to give that righteousness to Abraham based on what Abraham had done. Now, I waited tables in college at a restaurant and I had someone dine and dash on me one time. Have you ever had that happen? I was angry. Others were upset at the restaurant. I was probably more upset than they were. And the reason was because we had provided services and they needed to pay for those services. Not paying for those services was wrong. Even my non-Christian coworkers saw that clearly. See, Paul is saying that God would have to credit Abraham's account with righteousness if it was based on Abraham's works. Or it would be kind of like God was dining and dashing on Abraham. That would mean that God earned saving righteousness before God, even if it in small measure, which God in turn was obligated to credit to his account. There's another way to look at it, not 
based on grit, but based on grace. And Paul says Abraham needed to be justified by grace through faith, just like every other human in verse 5. You, you might have lofty visions of Abraham as a hero, and he was a mighty man of God, but he too needed the grace of God, according to Paul. Now here's the startling reality that Paul invites his listeners into. Abraham was godly when God visited him with his, with, excuse me, Abraham was ungodly when God visited him with his saving righteousness. Abraham was ungodly. He was amongst the ungodly sinners. He was not in sort of first class flying in a different section than everybody else. He was with us back in coach. Now to put it in financial terms, Paul says, Abraham was spiritually bankrupt along with the rest of humanity and desperately needy for God's grace. Now you've heard of generational wealth, but Abraham had generational spiritual poverty that he could not pay even if he were to work for an eternity. His spiritual FICO scores were negative. The debt collectors were lined up outside with pitchforks. He faced not just repossession, but the condemnation of God and his eternal damnation. Now here's the question. If it's not Abraham's righteous works that are being credited to his account as earned wages, then whose is it? That's right. It's the very righteousness of God that has been credited to Abraham's account. For Abraham, faith meant trusting in God's promise of an offspring and a land. Abraham trusted God, and God gifted him with credit of his very own righteousness. Now, I want to make a few important points here. First, Paul might not say it explicitly here, but his argument, I believe, is undergirded by a view of God by a theology of the nature of who God is. I believe that in this, Paul is speaking from a point of view that recognizes the aseity of God, the self-sufficiency of God, the fact that God is from himself, that he is the uncreated one, that he is self-sufficient in all things, that he is not needy. He is in need of nothing. He is the source of all life. And Paul understands this reality as he talks about God's grace and salvation. See, what this means is that God alone exists in of himself, that he does not need anything. He's not needy. God's not panhandling for glory with his creatures. No, he is altogether glorious. He is beautiful in all of his perfections. There is Nothing that we can do to obligate God to us. We can't make God indebted to us because there's nothing that we have that has not been given to us from him. He doesn't need us to mow his yard or to cut his bougainvillea in exchange for righteousness credit, so to speak. See, apart from Christ, we find that Isaiah 64, 6 tells us that even our righteous acts are like filthy rags. 
Now, I, I don't know about you, but I don't really imagine that any of us, if we were to find filthy rags with any kind of filth that we can imagine, and we were to go to Walmart or Amazon and try to trade them in for stuff, that we would get anything back, right? That's our best deeds. That's the most glorious thing that we create or do, the most sacrificial thing that we have, apart from Christ, is empty. It's worthless. See, we go to God for grace, not paychecks. And he gives freely because he is good, not us. Do you you hear that? God, story of the Bible, is it he is good, We are not. And he promises through faith to make us good. And even in that, we just look like him. Second, don't misunderstand Abraham believing God and it being credited to him as righteousness to mean that our faith is our justifying act of righteousness. Now, some take it that way. Faith is not equated with righteousness here. That's not the math that works out as you work through uh, Romans chapter 4. Faith is not a a work that merits salvation. Faith is grounded in in this text in God's grace. Justification does not mean that God looks at our faith and says, oh, you know what, that's that's pretty good. I think it's like a $5 faith. The bill is a trillion dollars. But man, you know, you're really trying, and I... I reckon that's good enough. No, faith is not credited as righteousness because our our faith is, is good enough. But righteousness is the thing that is credited to us. Instead, God is crediting righteousness to us through the instrument of faith. Ephesians 2, 8 says, by grace and through faith, you are saved and not none of yourselves. Now, this makes sense. We don't cling, if you think about it, to our faith to make us right with God. Does that make sense? We're not, we're not clinging to faith to make us right with God because that obligates God to forgive us. No. Our faith clings to Christ and the promises that are made to us in Jesus. And that is the thing that, that changes everything. Third, The coming in this text describes what we call imputation. The counting in this text describes what we call imputation. That means that God, he counts, credits, reckons, or imputes righteousness to our accounts based on faith. Now, a person becomes a Christian by putting their faith in the perfectly righteous life of Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life for us who died a a substitutionary death on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead. We trust God for all of the promises that he has made to us in Christ. And in return, he credits our bankrupt accounts with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, the God-man. That's God's grace to us. That. Fourth, the imputation of Christ's righteousness comes with the impartation of the Spirit's help. Now, Paul here, you might look at this and say, it seems like he's just against people working. Like, is this some kind of like, you know, 
communism of some sort? Like, what, what's he doing? Does he just want us to sit at home spiritually? Well, as Leon Morris says, Paul's not canonizing laziness. I, I like that phrase. He's not canonizing laziness here. No, justification by faith alone, it doesn't come alone. It, it comes with access to the Father, access to every spiritual blessing. If we receive the perfect work of Christ, we have access to every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And those who receive God's perfect righteousness are being perfected from one degree of glory to the next. If we don't see spiritual progress, and we only see spiritual regress in our lives, I think what Paul would say is we might need to trace our steps back to see if we have been credited to our spiritual bank account with the righteousness of Christ. That credit changes everything. Now, part of this imputation of God's righteousness to you is God counting you as righteous, but another part means God not counting your sins against you. In other words, he first says you're imputed or credited with the righteousness of Christ. And then he says in the last two verses, you are not imputed with your sins, a thing that you do deserve. Notice third. In verses 6 to 8, he shows that justification means that God does not count your sins against you. See, Paul's continuing to build this case, and he adds to it another voice of a spiritual hero, David, in Psalm 32, 1 to 2. And as he's expounding on justification by faith alone from the book of the law in Genesis, what he's doing here, I think, something that Jews would have picked up on, is now he's adding to it a verse from David in the writings, so that now he's showing that the law and the writings, the whole Old Testament together, confirms this reality of justification by faith alone. David and Abraham both saw it. And in verse 6, this is what Paul says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts as righteous apart from works, David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Now, David here, with this word blessing, he is speaking of the one who flourishes, the person who's in a happy place, in a good place. It's the same word that he uses in Psalm 1, where he describes the blessed man who is like a, a tree that is fruitful by living waters, where he is living a fruitful, a good life. It's, it's kind of an Edenic Eden kind of picture where you have this fruitful garden that is a place of peace with God. He says, this person is blessed. Now, who is David talking about? And who is Paul pointing to in this? Well, notice that David explains that this good place is for the person who is a sinner who is counted righteous apart from their works. Look what he says in verses 7 to 8. This is what he says. He says this. This is David, Paul quoting David. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, it's the same word here uh, that he's using uh, for Psalm 1. Again, he's talking about a flourishing man in Psalm 32. But you have to ask, how can a sinner be in a good place with a righteous God? Well, here David, another hero of the faith for the Jews, 
and Christians alike. He was a sinner who experienced justification by faith alone. He understood the life-giving reality of God's grace through faith. That's the good place that David found himself in. See, David pictures God's forgiveness with three images in these verses. Notice that they all are, are, are sort of developing this picture of what it looks like to be forgiven. This word for forgiving can mean, uh, first, legal pardon, particularly of someone who has a financial obligation. But here for Paul, he is pointing not only to forgiveness of old sin debts, but also pointing to the, the deliverance from the power of sin and a restoration to fellowship with God. And not only that, he says that their sins are covered, another image of forgiveness. Now, this image, I think, likely relates to the same idea that you find in Proverbs 10. Proverbs 10, uh, 12, it says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. See, God covers the sin of his covenant people. He, he doesn't expose and shame them. He, he covers their sins and shame, and he, he receives them as his cherished children. Isn't that a, a precious reality for the people of God? Now, I, I want my spiritual dad to deal with me in that way. I don't want him to deal with me in the way that I know that I deserve. And in verse 8, he goes on to say, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. You see that word for counting again? A happy, flourishing man is the one against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, you, you might ask, what does this have to do with me? Well, let me give you a number of explanations. But first, let me give you an illustration. Uh, just last night, I was talking to one of my sons and uh, having a really good dad moment, feeling super wise. And as I was talking to him, I, I was talking to him about being angry, a little bit disrespectful, and it centered around, you know, us being unfair about like bedtimes and generally just a lack of freedom. Uh, he wanted, you know, the freedom just to basically do whatever he wants within reason, his reason. And I wisely acknowledged that, you know, he was angry and complaining because he was focusing so much on what he felt he was owed. He, he had been taking sort of a, a canvas of, of like all the freedoms that others had. And he said, I don't have the same freedoms that they have. It's not fair. I deserve better. I was really having a good, wise dad moment. Said instead, what you should be doing is really focusing on how generous your parents have been and giving you a phone and letting you go and play paintball with your friends and on and on. And then somewhere in the middle of all of it, as we're having this heart-to-heart, -heart, I realized that that whole day I had been sad, thinking about the pressures of life, about the wrongs committed against me, and had been absent emotionally from my wife. I felt like I was owed more. But as I had meditated throughout the day on the imputation of Christ, I started to feel something different happening in my heart. I felt spiritual joy begin to attack my sense of despair. And I went and I asked forgiveness for my wife. I, I found this in my life. 
And I'm surprised by this even as a pastor. I need to constantly be reminded of the unfathomable riches that are mine in Christ. Because I so quickly forget. And one of the ways that I know that I've forgotten is that I'm sad, that I'm not hoping, that I'm impatient. And fortunately for my son, on that day, he caught me on the upswing, not on the downswing. See, God counts me righteous. What a reality. He gives me the very righteousness of Christ. More than I could ever earn. More than I am worth. It doesn't make sense that he should count me as righteous. Not just when I consider what others think of me in wrong ways, but the things that I know that I'm guilty of. It is amazing that God has credited me with so great a thing. Not only does God count me righteous, God does not count my sins against me. I, I deserve judgment. I deserve wrath. I don't deserve the fullness and richness of the grace of God. Is there anything more glorious, awe-inspiring in all of creation that the self-sufficient God who is in need of nothing would look on us as rebellious sinners in all of our debt, in all of our need, and not walk away so as not to be inconvenienced, but to instead lavish us with the very righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, the God-man. I will spend an eternity with you, brothers and sisters, unpacking the glories of that mystery. And that will make us a little less catty. Now catch this. God's grace, I believe, reorients, reorients us as selfish people towards God's glory. When we understand God's doctrine of imputation, this reality that he has credited to our account, the righteousness of Christ, that he has not credited our sins to us, it is reorienting us not to how good we are and what we deserve, but to the glory of God and how small and light every affliction and slight is weighed in comparison to the unimaginable, unfathomable worth and value of Jesus Christ. That will lead to greater joy. When we understand it, when we believe it, that will lead to greater faithfulness when we understand it. Second, God imputes the righteousness of Christ to the believer all at once. And let's just continue to meditate on this for just a bit. When he says that he has imputed to us the very righteousness of God in Christ, he gives it to us all at once. We are not on a layaway plan. See, when you put your faith in Christ, God does not credit your account with a, a dollop of righteousness or a, a kind of shard or a sprinkle of righteousness. God backs up the Brinks truck and he opens up the gate. Beep, beep, beep. Boom. All of it. He gives you credit for the righteousness of Christ. The value of that righteousness, it does not inflate, it does not deflate, it does not need to, it is perfect. It's not like Bitcoin or cash. It's always perfect and incalculable in value. 
Now, some of us are sad because we need to check the spiritual balance available to us in Christ. And if we would only look to his word and pray and seek to bring glory to his name, we would find that we have resources for joy and hope from any situation until Jesus comes. Third, God does not impute righteousness based on the size of your faith. He doesn't, he doesn't look at you and think, I think I'll give them like this much righteousness because they've got this much faith and that much righteousness. Ooh, that was maybe a little bit too much. You really are not looking good today. No, we're told a mustard seed size of faith, very small, receives credit for the full righteousness of the God man, Jesus Christ, who lived a life of perfect righteousness for us, died on the cross for our unrighteous deeds and was raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father where he continues moment by moment to intercede for us before God based on the immeasurable riches of his righteousness. 19th century pastor Horatius Bonner said this of this righteousness given to us. He said, it is not so much of it is reckoned to us, so much to account as men and businesses would say, in proportion to the strength of our faith, it's not given to us in proportion to the strength of our faith, or in proportion to the warmth of our love, or in proportion to the fervor of our prayers, but the whole of it passes over to us by imputation. We are accepted in the beloved. We are complete in him. Knowing you are right with God, that should bring peace into a hostile world. Please hear me. We live in a world where we are bombarded with what? Peace? No, outrage. Everyone is angry. You go to social media, who do you hear? The people that are angry. You go to the news, you hear people angry about angry people. Everybody's just outraged. And we hear those messages constantly. And it can make us angry and filled with outrage. And we need to recalibrate our hearts to the beautiful riches of the gospel of the God who justifies the ungodly, who did not give them what they deserved, but gave them grace. That'll silence our anger and it will replace it with an otherworldly kind of hope and joy. But let me say this, this world needs to see people who have hope and joy because there are not many who do. A non-Christian, you, you might be listening to this and think this just doesn't sound fair, the, the math doesn't work out. You can't count the ungodly as righteous because uh, then what about all the ungodly deeds? They wouldn't be held to account. The debit column is still full. Well, here's the good news of Jesus Christ. We find that this same word for counting is actually used in the Greek version of Isaiah 50 through 12. Uh, a text that is looking forward towards the coming Messiah who would also be a suffering servant. And we find that that text says, speaking of him, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he, this Messiah, shall divide uh, the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered or counted or imputed with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The reason the math works out is because of who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished at the cross. Jesus 
paid for our unrighteousness in full. And when you put your faith in him, your debit account, which you can't catch up on, is replaced by an account of the very eternal righteousness of Christ himself. If you haven't put your faith in Christ today, then you're in the place where you are facing paying for your sins yourself. Somebody's going to pay, either Christ or you. If you put your faith in Jesus, Jesus pays for your sins. You become a child and not an enemy. You become someone who is rich and an inheritor, not a debtor. If Jesus pays, you become a child of God. If you pay, you face eternal damnation. You face God's wrath and death. So this morning, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, grace is calling. Trust in Christ. Let's pray. Well, this morning, as we come before you, we praise you that you have credited the righteousness of the God-man Jesus Christ to our accounts. Father, if there is someone here who has not put their faith in Jesus, who on that last day will have to pay for their sin debt before you themselves, Father, awaken them to the reality that they cannot pay it, that they are destined for destruction. Help them to see the beauty of the riches that are available to them in Christ. Father, now as we prepare our hearts to sing, help us sing to the glory of your name and leave this place living in light of the glories of the gospel. It's your name we do pray. Amen.